Welcome to the podcast today, a conversation with Kate Caldwell, an Emmy-nominated casting director. And we'll talk about Hollywood and acting and actors. And Adobe Anawindi is with me as always in Lagos, Nigeria. Adobe, you probably know more about this topic than I do. Well, it's funny. After listening to your conversation, I realized how ancient I am. So <laughs> I did work in Hollywood in the late 90s, very early 2000s. But I, I, you know, I went back to research a lot of the names that you all, people you talked about, and it, it made me realize, okay, it's, it's, been 20, it's been over 20 years in Hollywood. But yeah, really interesting conversation. And I, and I think we will, it'll, it'll be a good, um, good one to talk about. Today on The Key and the Kite, we're having a conversation with Emmy-nominated casting director, Kate Caldwell. Kate's experience spans many areas of casting, having worked the studio and the network side at ABC Television on both voiceover and live action feature films at 20th Century Fox Feature Casting. Her credits include the Netflix series Unbelievable, for which she was nominated alongside Laura Rosenthal, Jodie Angstreich, and Melissa Kastenbauder for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Casting for a limited series, movie, or special. She's also worked on Kingdom, Hercules, the Western series Hell on Wheels, and Beverly Hills Chihuahua 2 and 3. After 23 years in Los Angeles, Kate Caldwell took her casting skills to the UK, where she currently works with Emmy-winning casting director Suzanne Smith. First of all, Kate, thank you for doing this. As you know, I know very little about entertainment. I know very little about Hollywood. And I'm really fascinated to talk to you today about what you do and what your job is and how it fits into the whole production process. So let's just start there. What does a casting director do? Well, basically, we find actors or audition actors and uh, send their auditions to our creatives, as I like to call them, which are generally producers and directors and stuff. And then it's the producer and the director who they get to make the final decision. And then we get them approved by the studio and the network. And then, or if it's TV or just the studio, if it's film, and then we hire them and put them on contracts. And that's about it. How does that process start? Walk me through, if I were to start a TV show tomorrow, walk me through what that process would look like. We're pretty much the first people, almost the first people to come onto your project once it's written and greenlit. Um, because if without, you know, actors, you don't have, go anywhere. you know, you don't have a project. Yeah. So uh, what they'll do is they'll send you the script and you'll have a conversation with the producer director about what they're looking for. And you'll uh, break down the characters in the script and talk to them about what specifically they want for each character. If they're a little bit more open, you can kind of tell when you uh, talk to people, if they know exactly what they want or if they're open to suggestion, which is more fun as a casting person, because, you know, if you get to kind of look around and find different actors for a role as opposed to just the same six actors that they want for every project, you know, the hell of a lot more fun. Right. But yeah. And then you, uh, then you go out and you just find those actors. Yeah. You just, and you bring them a lot. You bring them a lot of actors. What happens really is they almost always want to attach somebody, a name as they're called that they can finance the movie with or finance the, you know, make people really want to watch the TV show. Cause Tom Hanks means something, sure. you know, Tom Cruise means something. Sure. Apparently the name Tom. Means something. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you try to find them a couple people that mean a little something. And if you can find people who are like big enough, then it's great because then you are actually lucky and can generally go less namey for the rest of the roles. You can go find discover actors, which is pretty much every casting director's goal, I think is to break an actor, you know, everybody sure. wants to like, find the next Tom. Right. So if only my parents had named me Tom, I'd be a movie star. You might've had a chance. Might've had a chance. You find that star, you get the star, then you have to build a cast around that star. How much time do you spend thinking about what the entire cast looks like and how they might fit together? I've always been interested in, you take a show like, I don't know, take a show like Friends. You swap out any one of those actors on Friends for another character and the, the show might not have worked. What's that process like in thinking about the cast? That's exactly it. It's you think about 
you know, how everybody fits together. And you do chemistry reads a lot too, um, which What's are that extremely mean? important. It means that the, let's say you have friends. So um, what Courtney Cox is sure. Courtney Cox. Even back then she was Courtney Cox. So she meant something. <laughs> so she probably was, well, if I, I don't even remember anymore, but she was probably one of the first cast and maybe Matthew Perry, because he also meant something back then for sure. Um, and then you read all these other people and you will have the people that you cast come in and read with these other people. So they probably brought in Jennifer Aniston to read with them. And, you know, it just, uh, you see how they bounce off each other. I worked on a show called Kingdom. Uh, it was on DirecTV. It was an MMA show and drama. It was a family drama with MMA elements is what it really was. And we had Frank Grillo was our lead. And so we brought him in to read with the guys who play as sons and it changed everything. You know, you can have a favorite going into just by reading one-on-one with somebody and then you put them in a room with the star and it completely can change your mind. It's just a very strange thing. It's how, because uh, some people are a bit more improv oriented, yeah. you know, even on a drama, unless you're on an Aaron Sorkin drama, then you cannot be <laughs> improv oriented. That is not okay. But like on, on ours, Byron, our uh, showrunner and creator, he loved it. He loved when they would just riff with each other and you got to be able to keep up with that. So it changed everything when we did chemistry reads. As an aside, I've heard that about Aaron Sorkin. I've also heard that Jack Nicholson was amazing at rewriting scripts and and writing whole scenes over and then coming in and doing the scene in like three different ways. And I've always wondered because Jack Nicholson was, of course, on A Few Good Men, which is an Aaron Sorkin thing. I've always been curious. I've never heard a story about how those two got along or didn't get along. I'd, I'd yeah, love to, I'd I'd love to hear that someday and, yeah. and see if Jack actually did some of that rewriting and, and some of that work on that. What makes an actor a good actor? That's an interesting question. Acting is reacting, which is a dumb thing that we always say, but it's so true. And it's somebody who can really feel and feel a character, embody a character and make it their own. And then you really believe it. It's, it's all behind the eyes. And especially nowadays, you know, we're doing these Zoom auditions like, you know, we're Zooming right now. Right. And we're so close. And it's like yeah. you can see everything. It's, so, it's actually weirdly almost better for casting because you can really get in, you know, usually you have to rewatch a tape and all this, but you're seeing it right there. And it's pretty interesting. Sorry, I go off on tangents. So no, gotta, go for you it. Gotta rain, you podcast. gotta rain me in. It's a podcast. Um, We're all good. Yeah, still. Um, but uh, <laughs> I do think it's, but when I go back to acting, it's reacting. We had a role once on, we did one of the Hercules movies, the one with uh, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Was the Rock at the time. And there's a character in there who, ha- who doesn't speak. He's a, he's a very important character. He's the whole way through. And I think he has one line at the absolute end, but the whole way through, he doesn't speak. And you would not believe how hard it was to get somebody to do a role where they don't speak. It's like, but you're on screen the whole time with The Rock and you get to actually act. Like you, it's so much harder to act without having right. any dialogue at all. Like for I, if I, but this is, I'm not an actor, but if I were an actor, I would think that is the greatest challenge ever. Bring it on. No, nobody wanted to do it. We find there was finally the, the guy who did do it was amazing. And, you know, it, he was just a beautiful role. I mean, it was very, he meant something, you know, yeah. that, come on, man. I was, I was thinking about this, you know, we set this up about a week ago and I've been, or a couple weeks ago, maybe. And I've been thinking about acting a lot more in the last two weeks since we set this up. And, uh, on YouTube, something came up the other day. It was it was a clip from the Tonight Show from a year ago in the middle of the pandemic, and and Jimmy Fallon had the cast of Hamilton come on and do the song "Helpless," right? And Philippa Sue, who's amazing um, on stage, she is doing that song, and she's in this Zoom box, and it's just her face with a blank background, and you see every emotion with every word that she sings and it changes, right? There's a lot of different emotions there. That's got to be really difficult to try to convey in a zoom box, all those different emotions, because you're not moving around. You're not, you don't have the full body to move around and express things. Is that the same with auditions that you're doing now? Is it mostly just the face? It, well, it's it's kind of this. It's yeah. Your, you know, you really want to do mid chest to top of head. That's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's really hard, even in a regular audition when you're in the room with another actor to have uh, to just do anything that's action oriented. 
Yeah. Because it's just it's impossible. Plus everything looks too looks super big when you do it, right? So you have to tone down those auditions for the audition. So the performance is for the audition. So say you've got somebody doing, you know, an action thing and they're screaming and they're mad and whatever. And it's like, it's too much. It looks ridiculous and theatrical and actors learn how to tone it down for the audition. And then when they get the job and they go on totally different, then, then go nuts, you know, then you've got room to breathe and stuff. And there's, it's just an easier thing to do. But yeah, that's a, be- that's a beautiful thing. By the way, Hamilton, that's a lightning in a bottle cast. We've never seen it live. We've seen the Apple TV or, or Disney. It's on Disney. We've seen the yeah. Disney uh, version of it. We're actually going to it in six days on Broadway. Oh, cool. Oh, wait, no, 13 days on Broadway. We're going to it in 13 days on Broadway, uh, which will that's be fun cool. to see. Yeah. yeah I got to tell you, I'd be interested to see what you think because I saw it. Um, I've seen it a couple of times. Great cast both times, 100%. I mean, West End, you know, great, but Not the I, same. I watched it on Disney Plus and yeah. I was like, <laughs> it's weird. It's a lightning in a bottle cast. It has nothing. It's a great play and you will love it on Broadway as well. But then I want you to go back and watch it on Disney Plus yeah. and tell me if you're not like, ah. I've wondered about that. I've actually wondered about that. And and I may not ever again think, hear the name Thomas Jefferson without picturing David Diggs, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, right? <laughs> he we're going to do... um. My, the office I work in is going to do a project where um, Lafayette yeah. is uh, one of the characters. And I'm like, well, I just, I, you know, I mean, I like Lafayette, like, it's just yeah. immediate. Right. So it just like, happens. Oh, Every time you hear that word, that's hilarious. <laughs> the, the flip side of that is, you know, the flip side of David Diggs just being this larger than life personality on that stage is you and I've talked about my favorite episode of TV ever is the series finale to The Leftovers. And part of what I think about there is you have Justin Theroux and Carrie Coon at the end of that show, and they're just sitting at a table talking. And I wonder about just how difficult that had to be to get all of the emotion that's packed in those few moments in in a very real setting, right? Most of us are not going through theatrics in life. We're sitting at a table talking to each other. And as you think about quality actors. I just think if you can pull that off, then then you've got to be an amazing actor to do that. Carrie Coon is truly like one of the best actors of her generation. It it's up to her if she wants to be a huge star or not, I think. And I think she I love her path. Her path is amazing. You know, she's doing exactly what I would do if I were an actor. Let everybody who know who works in the industry know you and love you like we all do. I don't know anybody who doesn't, but who knows. But then let the public always, if they see you, think that they went to school with you. Yeah. You know, character <laughs> actors is the way, that's the way to do it, guys. Because right. you're not going to be hounded by people. They'll just always think, did I, did we have home, were we in home room together? Right. Yeah. You know yeah, I mean? that's it. She's yeah. just brilliant. But that's exactly it. They are, this the skill it takes to sit at a table and keep our attention is beyond amazing. And I got to tell you, stuff like that, it's funny when you're auditioning actors, you have to pick scenes. Um, sometimes they'll do it for you, but generally you have to pick them and see, do you like these to us to use these scenes for auditions? And the hardest ones are the dialogue heavy yeah, sitting at a table thing. And I don't know if you've ever seen the, the uh, British show of line of duty, but oh, no. line of duty is 99% them sitting. And that's not true. It's like 75% them sitting across the table from each other. And it's hilarious sometimes because the scene will go on for like 30 minutes and you're like, how, (laughs) how, Uh, whatever. Anyway, for me, Carrie Coon's one of those people where if I see her name on a cast list, I'm going to watch that production. Are there people like that for you? There's a million people like that for me. A million. I I could, I don't even know where to begin. I love Rory Kinnear. Like I love character actors. Like, a, like most people probably don't know who Rory Kinnear is, it's, which is fine. Look him up. He's great. You know, um, like Ruth Naga. I, I, I'll do like, yep. Okay. I'm trying to think like big ones that you'd be like, yeah. Who would you know? It may not be big uh, ones though. It may, I mean, part of me is because I don't know Hollywood at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be listening to this, taking notes going, okay, now I got to go back and find what they've done so I can watch. Yeah. Those, those two are fantastic. One for me, I'll give you another example for me is Nicola Walker. She's someone who, if I see her on a show, I'm going to watch the show. She was on uh, MI5 and her- watch MI5. 
five, but you've never watched uh, Line of Duty. I haven't made Line of Duty. Actually, is one of those that comes up in shows we think you would like, and I just haven't made it to it yet. Interesting. Well, yeah. If you ever do, let me know. I only watched it over lockdown, so okay. I can't say that I. Yeah, no, I'll have to check it out. I watched them all <laughs> because there you go. Uh, Margot Robbie. Yeah. I mean, she. People know her. Yeah. I just think, uh, for for a woman that's that beautiful, to also be just interesting and talented. I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but like she's, she could really have just coasted by on her looks forever, but she didn't. One of the jobs I was at, we auditioned her once and she was by far the nicest human being ever, which always the people who are super nice and the people who are absolute assholes are the ones that stick with me the most. Yeah, so, sure. you know, she was a delight. Do you have actors who, when you're casting a movie or casting a show where you go, yeah, this person would be perfect for that role, but boy, I just don't want to have to go through working with them. Well, I don't generally have to work with them. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. There's someone else's but, problem. Yeah. I mean, there are people that I don't necessarily want to make my poor creative people right. have to deal with every day and yeah. the people on set. But then I'll also, if they're really good, yeah. I can't not put them on a list, but then I'll talk about it. I'll be like, sure. look, I know that they're a nightmare. We all, I don't know if you've heard the stories, but we've all heard the stories. So and some people it's worth it. Some people yeah. they've heard the stories and it's worth it's worth it for the performance. And others are like, oh yeah, no, we don't need that. And the flip side of that, are there people who are just such great people that you're like, I gotta find them apart? Always. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, my friend Katie Lowe's. Yeah. Uh, who is also actually a very, very talented Yeah. Actor, and her husband, Adam Shapiro, yeah. are both fantastic actors. And when I mean, I do live in in the UK now, so I'm casting in the UK, so it's different. But when I lived in LA, if they were available and I had anything that they were remotely right for, I would 100% try to get them jobs. Uh, Adam is like the greatest because he will he'll do almost anything if he likes it. You know, he just really likes to work and he likes to meet people. And he's one of those people that is so delightful to have on set. Then he works all the time because other they'll be like, Oh, Adam Shapiro worked on something and now I want him on my stuff. And right. it's just, that's what you do. That's the thing all actors should know is we all talk, all the casting people talk, all the directors and producers talk, all the studio heads talk. And if you're an asshole, we're going to find out and yeah. it's going to make us think twice about wanting to bring you in. But if you're a delight, then, you know, you'll, you'll work. So Katie Lowe's, who, who is, you know, is another one of my favorites. She was on Scandal um, for those who are trying to place her and, and did an amazing job with a crazy role on Scandal, right? Because she, start, she started that series, you know, you kind of had this girl next door kind of vibe with her, and then she ends up mutilating people. I, I may get the timing on this wrong, but she and her husband then, after Scandal, went to Broadway and mm -hmm. did Waitress or something for a while, yeah. right? And yeah. I always thought it would have been really interesting to just see them on Broadway, just to see the difference between being on stage and being on a TV screen. Yeah, they're both fantastic singers and, you know, have done other theater. They have their own theater company uh, with some friends of theirs in LA. That's a really great theater company. But yeah, I wish I could have seen it because they are great. But yeah, Katie is much more like the beginning, like the the character that she got. <laughs> She's in, not like, the beginning. That's who Katie is. So like for her to be able to go where she went, just yeah, that's yeah, yeah. it's really nice to see. Yeah, that was that was quite a story arc for her. It was it was <laughs> kind of girl next door for a couple episodes, and then. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between an actor who makes it big and one who just kind of grinds out one episode at a time on a TV show? Well, I mean, I imagine it gets pretty frustrating, uh, but there's so many reasons why there are people that do one over the other. There's so many reasons why you do or don't get a part is the, yeah. is the deal. Most of them have nothing to do with you and nothing to do with your performance. There are so many reasons why... They went a different age. They went a different sex yeah. or gender. Um, they went a different ethnicity. They wrote the character out altogether. You know, right. There's so many reasons. So I don't know if there's a really good answer to that no. because a lot of it's luck and timing. Yeah. You know, you can be just as talented as the series regular that, that you're in a scene with, but you just, your time hasn't come yet. But hey, if you're making a living. I was watching a show the other night and I saw a performance in a scene that was just absolutely remarkable, right? Just blew me away. 
and I, I don't even know who that actor is, right? I don't. I, I, and so I go to IMDb and I look this person up, and they are very much just a grinded out one episode on a show at a time kind of career. But boy, were they they were they're they're really good. And, well, and I want to know who it is and what the show was now. Well, I don't. I, <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards. I'll tell you afterwards. Okay, okay. I don't want to out this poor person. And <laughs> Why can't you do better? <laughs> right? Um, sad, sad. Poor woman. Do you remember when you fell in love with Hollywood? I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, w- I would watch. I was a fat kid. So I was like watching a lot of TV. Yeah. And eventually I watched, went to the movies and watched a lot of movies. Like every weekend, I was lucky my parents would like just drop me off and let me watch, go nice. to the movie. And uh, I saw Poltergeist like seven times and really my mom refused to let me go to it anymore so i lied to her and told her i was going to a different movie good catholic girl i am does she know that or is she gonna find it out now Uh, if she only knew how to listen to a podcast right she's she's 82 um but um but yeah i loved it and i loved watching anything on tv i loved the old stuff and i didn't really want to watch the old stuff my dad was an older dad and you know the stuff he grew up with He'd have us watch and I'd be like, but I'll never forget because I remember the first time I saw the sting, I was like, I want to watch this dad. And uh, it's one of the best movies. It's still, it holds up. It is one of the best movies that has ever been made. It is an amazing movie. And I was a child and I'm mad at myself for not believing my dad because he was right. It was amazing. There's a lot of people who have moments like that, but then don't know how to turn it into a career. When did you figure out that this was going to be the career? Was it kind of immediate when you were a kid or was it later? Oh my God. I have this conversation all the time because I have no idea. I've asked people because I, first of all, I have a terrible memory. Um, and second of all, I have a terrible memory. So <laughs> um, Danny Moore, do you remember Danny Moore no. in college? Did you know him at all? Uh, he uh, was a friend of mine in college. And one day this was, I was probably two years out of school or so. Um, out of college, I was working at Bottle Barn Liquors in the Fargo Dome, I believe at the time. And uh, he w- lived in the cities. He was like, hey, my friend Doreen, who lives in LA, she uh, is moving out, her, out of her apartment. Um, so her roommate needs a roommate. And they're all like people who are from this area. Most of the people at that apartment building, you know, why don't you just go? You've always wanted, you always talk about going, go, you have a place to live. And I was like, yeah, don't know. What, I have no idea what I thought I was doing. No idea. I went to school because I thought I was going to be a journalist. And then I realized I hated it because you have to ask people really tough questions. That's not, that aren't your business. So when, once I got there, I worked uh, for Doreen for a couple of weeks as a temp on her desk. She was a talent agent and it was the worst job I'd ever had (laughs) ever. I didn't, I still, to this day, don't know how people do it. I have nothing but mad respect for agents. Why did, what made it, what made it the worst job ever? I, it's so much work. It is just like constant grind of like pitching actors to casting directors on different projects. And then having, and then if you are lucky enough to get auditions, you have to like send those auditions out. But it was before the internet, really. I mean, there was the internet, but it wasn't as big. And so you were faxing a lot of stuff and I'm old. And then (laughs) it was just, it was just a lot. And the egos and the having to stroke the egos on the actors. Oh, Christ. I have to stroke egos to a point, but I only for like the 15 minutes or 20 minutes they're in my, the room with me. And then I go about my day. They have to do it all the time or they lose those clients. Nothing but respect from their agents are the ones that generally find the actors that they bring to us that then we get to pretend like we broke and found, but we didn't. It was the agent. You know what I mean? Doreen was like, okay, this isn't for you. No problem. What do you like? What do you know? And I said, well, I love actors. I know actors. And she said, oh, casting. Let's see if we can get you an internship where you can work for free and see if that's for you. And she got me an interview at Altschloss and Kritzer, which is an amazing casting office. I love them so much to this day. They're so prolific. They've won a billion Emmys for good reason. And Eric Dawson said to me, if you will do your Fargo accent for me and my wife, anytime we ask, you can work for us for free. (laughs) That's how my career started. That's hilarious. What's interesting to me about this story is that in college, you said to me, I'm going to go to work in Hollywood. Did I? Yes. What did I want to do? 
You didn't know. You didn't know. You said you you said to me in college, you said, I'm going to go to work in Hollywood. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to go do it. And and like you said, this we weren't pre-internet, but it was pre-internet being what it is. And so we lost touch with each other for a number of years. And then when we reconnected on social media and you were in Hollywood, I went, well, of course she's in Hollywood because that's where she said she was going to go. That's so funny. I don't remember it at all. I even asked, do you remember Tamara Wheats? Yeah. yeah. Tammy? Yeah. yeah. So Tammy, I asked her recently, I was like, do you remember? Like, did I talk about it a lot? Were you, did I, did you expect me? And she's like, no, one day you just said, I'm moving to LA. It's like, oh Christ. Okay. I, I um, vividly remember the conversation. We were sitting in Lowerman's and, and I vividly remember the conversation with you where you just looked at me and said, I'm going to Hollywood. And I went, man, if I had that kind of clarity in my life, that would be amazing. Oh, well, <laughs> Now you know it was uh, fake clarity. It was, <laughs> it was a Lowerman's schooner. Yeah, um, I think I think it was. I bet, but I, my guess is is that it was something that was there, right? You may not have said it to anyone else. You may not remember saying it to me, but it was probably just sitting there and something you wanted to do, and you needed to find a way to make it happen. Yeah, you know, I never wanted to be an actor because I knew I wasn't an actor. I mean, I think deep down I probably wanted to be an actor, but I knew I wasn't an actor, yeah. you know? So it's like, what else could I do? And, sure. Uh, thankful, I, th- I still think it's Doreen that got me into casting, which, you know, whether she likes it or not, because I didn't know what casting was. Yeah. Um, really? Right. There are a lot of jobs in Hollywood that... That, I mean, if you watch the credits go by and I'm, I don't know what any of those jobs are, right? But there are a ton of people doing them. It's really, yep. really interesting. You also get scripts before they're made into shows. Do you have writers that you just love? I sure. I, I love Byron Belasco, who did Kingdom. I love his, his, I love his style. I love his words. I'm not just saying that because he hired me to cast a show. I really I always, I still think his stuff holds up so well. I use it in workshops and I think actors are better when they have good dialogue and his dialogue's great. Other than that, I'm sure I do. And I just can't think of any, look, I'll, I'll watch anything Neil Gaiman does. I love Neil Gaiman and anything that's Neil Gaiman related, I will do. Um, Graham Yost, I think he, who did Justified, I think Justified is one of the best series ever. I like Eric Kripke. I hate that they're all men. (laughs) Support my ladies. I can't even think of one right now. That's the worst. Oh, you know, Michaela Cole, who's also an actress and a fantastic actress and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. Who did um, Fleabag. I mean. She's amazing. amazing. Yeah. What, when you read a script, do you, are you able to visualize it? Are you visualizing actors as you read it? Are you visualizing scenes as you read it? What's that like to get a script that hasn't been turned into a show? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, yeah, always. But to a point, sometimes things come out more than others. I don't want to get myself too stuck in it because I know that's that like if that person's not going to do it, I don't want to just be so myopic. But yeah, I, I'll remember. <laughs> I remember when I was reading the Harry Potter books, I definitely saw. Oh, my God, I'm having a senior moment. I love him so much. And I've completely forgotten his name. Uh, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Yes, That's Alan it. Rickman. I love him so much. Um, and I saw Alan Rickman. So when he got cast, it was almost like vindication that I was right on something. But definitely when you read a script, you because that's what you have to do. You have to start visualizing it all together. I kind of like once the big roles are done, you know, your series regulars and stuff. If you're doing TV, I like the smaller roles. Yeah. Uh, when we did Unbelievable for Netflix, we had the most amazing group of producers and directors, and they were mostly women and so respectful of each other and so brilliant. They like it if they one line meant something to them, and that's so rare. Most people are just like, I don't care, just cast whoever. Not most people, but a lot of people can be that way. And they were like interested in everybody that we brought in. And I love those roles. And there's nothing harder to act or cast than under five lines. It's fun because you get to just see so many different people. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Alan Rickman and, and Snape with Harry Potter, and I didn't know Harry Potter. I hadn't read the books and I hadn't seen the movies. And then we were headed for England and we decided to do the Harry Potter studio tour because my kids were crazy about Harry Potter at that point. And I decided, well, I should at least watch a movie or two before I get there. And I did, and I watched, I think, one or two. 
of the movies. But then I got to the studio tour. And at the beginning of the studio tour, they talk about all the work that went into not just telling the story within each movie, but to telling the story within the entire arc of the series of movies and how they wanted everybody in the production to understand their role in not only that movie, but in the arc. Mm -hmm. Even if you were just working the craft table, like what are you doing today to help us make this scene work? And, and where do you fit into the whole arc? And I just think that level of storytelling fascinates me. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, I really love that studio tour for that. You know, they give you a lot of background for a lot of departments. Um, but I will say, uh, the first time I went and yes, I have been more than once because I do love Harry Potter and they change it all the time. Well, not all the time, but they change it enough that you have to go back. I was, when I left, I was so viscerally angry because they did not mention casting once. Really? Nothing about casting. They cast children, children. I mean, yes. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe was found by the producer, but those other kids were not. And they don't mention casting once. And to me, I, I even have goosebumps thinking about it because it just gets me so angry. Like, how do you, how do you thank everybody else by giving them this beautiful spotlight that they deserve? I'm not taking it right. away from them. They are just as important, but you don't have a movie without that cast. And yeah. do you just not bother to talk about it. It needs to be changed. Well, and not only that, but those kids had to grow up over a seven movie arc, right? Or eight movie, however many there were. And to cast kids at that age and thinking that they were going to be able to stick with it. Yeah. And get better. Which, and get right. I don't, which I don't think all of them did, mind you. <laughs> Most of them did. I tell you what, I, I made such a, that tour made me a fan of the movies. And and made me watch the movies. Uh, if I get to go back, and I hope to go back someday, I will definitely look to see if they've got casting in there this time. <laughs> what are you up to now? You've moved from you've moved from L.A. to what Bristol, I guess, in England. L.A. <laughs> yeah, Long Ashton in Bristol. Long Ashton. So, so you've, L.A. You've... <laughs> to L.A. <laughs> are you are you now working in England? Are you now working in the U.K.? What's what's going on? Yes, I am extremely fortunate that I. I mean. I don't want to thank the pandemic, but thanks to the pandemic, I got a job working remotely because all casting for the most part is done out of London and Bristol is about two hours uh, west. Okay. And so I didn't want to have to drive or, or I don't, I don't drive over here yet. I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I didn't want to have to drive or take the bus or the train, which is stupidly expensive in this country, that train uh, to go to London every day. So um Luckily, through another fantastical boss of mine, I found my new boss and she has let me work remotely. And luckily, I'm working on a project that is shooting in London, but has people that have to have American accents. Oh, really? There you go. Thank you. I can do that. Is there a difference in casting in the UK versus casting in the United States? Yeah, there is. There is. It's, but I'm sure it's different everywhere. But I find that there's so there's less actors here than there is in America for obvious reasons, right? So you actually get to know them a bit more on a personal level. Not all of them, but like you take more time with them. Everybody's so much nicer. The agents are nicer for the most part. There's not as much of a hierarchy where they make you feel like you're not worthy of speaking to them. You can speak to almost every agent and they'll talk to you as opposed to like, say, the big agencies in LA, which some are great and have great uh, agents that are delightful and some really don't. There are egos for sure, but less. The egos are not nearly as big as they are in LA in terms of the agents, especially. Um, actors fight for what they want here. Like they'll audition for things when they shouldn't, they're off, they should be offer only because they've done so much stuff and they have great, you know, video that shows it, but they'll still fight for it if they want. And they'll audition if they think that it's something they really want to do. And I have mad respect for that. Okay. Before we go, what, should I be watching right now? Have you watched Squid Game? No, I haven't. Oh yeah, I got to tell you, I, I don't. I want to say I, I didn't jump on this bandwagon super quick. I did it like a few weeks ago. I stayed up till seven in the morning watching it. I couldn't stop. It just, it's so fascinating. I just absolutely loved it. So uh, I, and you know, Korean actors, it just, it's pretty impressive. So I'm, and then now I'm into. 
DP, which is another Korean show. Those are the ones that I've kind of been I look, look for me, I watch everything, but I watch a ton of reality because yeah. reality TV isn't work for me. Right. Sure. So that's where I, you know, I will always watch that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I do love, I do love line of duty. It's great. Okay. I've never seen, there's a British series called ghosts. The British version of ghosts is fantastic. There's I'll, not one bad season, which is they only, they do six episodes a season, but like to not have one bad season is impressive. And it's very clever. I will um, need to check I do that watch out. American stuff too, mind you, but those ones like, did you ever watch? I know it's way you loved the leftovers, which I love about you because that was an amazing show. It really was. Um, I, I'm actually rewatching it right now because because I yeah, it's still amazing. Well, just because the first time you're going through it, it's 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 weird enough that you're trying to figure it out while you're watching it. Now that I've watched it once, going back a few years later and watching it again, knowing a little bit what's coming. Is helpful actually. Have you ever heard of the other two? No. It is a comedy. It's on HBO Max now. It was on, I think, Comedy Central before I could be wrong. It's about this um, brother and sister who are a bit older. They're in their like 20s, late 20s, or whatever. And they have a kid brother who's like 17 or something. And he becomes a big internet star. And they become, you know, the other two. Oh, Um, sure. it's pretty funny. Uh, some of it's very in Hollywood, but I think even without that, Molly Shannon is the mother. And oh, she's nice. Just, she's just amazing. Yeah. Um, as always. I have to ask if you know anything about the Nigerian entertainment industry. No, but I know a lot of people are shooting down there. Yeah, because I have stuff shooting down there. Adobe, our co-host, was telling me that they call it Nollywood, right? So there's Hollywood, oh, really? Bollywood, and Nollywood. And, and Adobe thinks Nollywood is the third largest... Uh, entertainment industry spot in the world. Yeah, I'm sure. I I really do think we have something that's shooting there, but I can't think of what it is. Well, Kate, thanks for taking the time and doing this. Of course. It was a pleasure. It's great to see you. Mildly interesting. You know, it's fascinating. I love this stuff because I don't know anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) You're always welcome to ask me more questions off the air. I will. I will. And I'll do it. um, I'll, I'll come visit sometime. Yeah. Come on over. Well, that was a really fascinating conversation on a number of levels, um, Carter. I don't know if you know this, uh, but casting director roles are heavily dominated by women. 2021 statistics that I, I did a Google search, it's about 74% female casting really? directors in, in Hollywood. Yes. No idea. Um, so this is, yeah, so this is a really highly female dominated role in the industry. We mentioned in the show open that, that you had worked in Hollywood uh, years ago. What memories did this bring back for you of that time? Well, interestingly, so I did two things in Hollywood. I worked for a production company in Beverly Hills in the sort of early 90s. And my job was I was a script reader. I would read scripts and I would write um, synopses on scripts that producers would consider or my production company then would consider um, buying to turn into movies. One such script was a movie called Anaconda. Really? Um, Yes, Anaconda. Absolutely. I read that script and my production company, Cinema Line, actually made that movie. Yeah. How did you get that job? Well, after my amazing stint at the White House working with Mrs. Clinton, I pretty much knew I could do anything I wanted to do. I had a year's break between my first degree and going to get a master's. That was to deal with my parents. I would um, finish and go back and get a master's. And it was a year where I felt, you know, I could, this is the only opportunity in my life where I would do something like this, probably. And I could. I had the connections. I had the references. So I moved to Hollywood, moved to L.A. and uh Tried my luck in Hollywood, first as a uh, script reader in a small production company. And then I went to work for an entertainment PR firm for a genius called Paul Block, who was actually probably one of the most powerful publicists in Hollywood at the time. Um, so I spent, it was, it was a fascinating time to, to be in Hollywood. And as a PR associate at the time, I, you know, I, I used to do things like uh, babysit Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone at premieres. It was a really fascinating time and uh, a really fun job. I have to say that my my Hollywood knowledge is is a lot is rusty now. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's been let's, a minute. <laughs> let's go back though. I'm really curious about this. So, so sure. was was script reader something that you were interested in or was it something that you, a job that you discovered while you were thinking, I want to go work in Hollywood? Well, interesting. So it's a real role and I wanted to do something in Hollywood, but I had no, I studied journalism. I didn't have any Hollywood experience, but I, I read a lot and I, I wrote, I, you know, I was a journalist by training and um, we used to get loads of scripts and somebody had to read that stuff pretty quickly um, and write the synopsis. And that was my job. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And then you moved on to the PR side. And was that mostly just representing actors and helping them get positive PR? Right. So Rogers and Cowan was probably, probably, you know, top two or three entertainment PR firms in Hollywood at the time. And um, so I was assistant to um, I guess one of the the managing partner, and he as the publicist to you know Hollywood people, actors and actresses. So they did all their press, all their media. They ran their junkets. I mean, they were like pretty much their liaison between the artists and and the public. So my job was everything from. Uh, making coffee to getting laundry to the bigger things I did actually were like babysitting artists at premieres and, and press junkets. That sounds fascinating. It sounds was, like a lot of fun. It absolutely was. It was. It was a lot of fun. So I know that in those days, like the casting, casting calls were such a big event. Right. So when I heard her talk about, I mean, COVID has affected every facet of our lives, of course. So the idea of doing casting calls via Zoom was really interesting to me because in those days or, you know, before COVID, I would imagine casting calls were a major event. You know, there were all days along, you know, with that face-to-face interaction, people were acting. So I, I was trying to imagine how different that would be now because even casting calls was part of the job that we did as publicists, you know, the production around going for the, um, for the, for the casting call. Kate talked about the fact that I think she said it was better because she really got to get, get a, I didn't understand the point she made about, I think she, the impression I got was she thought the Zoom calls was actually better. Did you get that? Was that, was it that certainly, the point she was I, I think what she was saying was that you, you really got a sense because you're on a Zoom call in a box and, mm. and you know, you just see kind of chest uh, top ahead that you get a sense of how expressive, a real sense of how expressive the actor is with right. their face. Um, there's a lot you may miss. Uh, in a Zoom call, but that intimacy of how they do just in that small little box is something that is kind of a unique advantage to the Zoom process. Mm. Because I worked in Hollywood, you know, when when I go to the theater and the movie ends, I literally sit right through the entire credits. So the gaffers, I you know, the casting directors, I, I see it all. I see the assistants, but I I didn't realize. And I guess if you think about it, it is a bit of a no brainer because she said, you know, without the cast, there is no movie. But I didn't quite understand how powerful casting directors were until that, until I heard your conversation. You asked her the question about, um, you know, what's, what, what's the difference between people who make it and people who don't? And she said, you know, sometimes it's got nothing to do with their talent or who they are as a person. So it's the other sort of political things that come into play. If, you know, if, if the producer likes you, the director likes working with you, um, if the casting director had a girlfriend for the role. So it was interesting just listening to all that and recognizing really the power of the casting director and also also having read the fact that um, it's it's a female dominated area in Hollywood sort of it gave me a bit of hope when you think about me too and you think about sort of the casting you know the casting couch and sort of you know casting directors get a bad rap so it's interesting to to hear someone like Kate with all the personality that comes with her job it was also quite refreshing to to know that yeah it's a female a female dominated um, industry. So yeah, women have power in Hollywood, I guess, is the point. I think that's an interesting takeaway. You know, it's interesting because you made the point about the process of getting a job in Hollywood. And I, in my day job, I've hired a lot of people. And it's always interesting because I have had candidates for jobs that have been perfect for the job and have not gotten the job because someone else brought just something slightly different. They brought something different to the team. 
one of the things that we think a lot about as we do hiring in my current job is making sure that we fill out a team where the individuals on the team bring different skill sets to the job so that we don't have everyone exactly the same. Absolutely. And again, the, the key word there is also diversity. Someone shared a story, an HR story, whereby you know, resumes came in, the, the, the finalists for that role were both engineers. They both had everything. I mean, they're smart. They've done amazing work. They, they both did extremely well in the interview. But this is a very technical field. And the person who got the job in the end got the job because she played the piano. Nothing to do with the, the job. I mean, both candidates were, were, were excellent. And it was a matter of, well, what, what more do you bring to the table? And that out-of-the-box sort of thinking, again, diversity. You know, you work, you, you work with a whole bunch of engineers or a whole bunch of medical staff or a whole bunch of people who think the same. And sometimes, it, like you rightly said, and like the point Kate was making, it's more than just the skills, right? So sometimes it's, it's, the, it's not the person with the best skill set that gets the role. It's the person that brings a different kind of value. Um, to the team. Yeah, she called it a chemistry read. Chemistry read. And right. and I think and I and I I thought at the time while we were talking to her, I thought, you know, wouldn't that be brilliant if we could just do that in other careers? I love that. I, I think diversity in everything we do is 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 critical and it's a great um, you know, success in our, diversity is success. I finish these conversations, I always think after the conversation about all the questions I didn't ask, which there are a number of guests that we've had on the podcast that I, you know, in a year or two would like to have back because there are so many questions that I don't get to ask that I would like to mm -hmm. ask. And one of the things that we didn't talk about with Kate was about really poor casting decision she's made. Right. Another thing I would have been really interested in finding out, again, because I've now learned that the industry is female dominated. I was surprised you didn't touch on sort of um, casting couch drama, as it were. And, and I wondered if female casting directors, I, it would have been really interesting to get her take on um, the, hopefully it's the old um, casting couch uh, mentality. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. We can we can have her back in a little while. One of the things that's interesting to me, Adobe, is the idea of casting directors as a role, and it's not something that is always front and center when you think of Hollywood. And and I have to be honest, until Kate became a casting director, I never thought about casting directors, but they play such an important role, uh, but are, are often overlooked. Absolutely. And and she mentioned that um, when you talked about the um, Harry Potter studio tour, and she said it was great, you know, didn't take anything away from it. But, you know, she did feel very strongly about the fact that uh, there was no mention, there was no props given to um, the role of the casting of those series. I would love to go back to the Harry Potter studio tour because... It's an amazing tour. And really, when we were on it the first time, uh, just kind of mind-blowing in the level of dedication to the fidelity of the storytelling. But I'd love to go back. There's so much information there. I'd love to go back and just look at it again. And I'm surprised that there isn't anything about casting. So I'm a reader. I love to read. Um, and there have been amazing movies adapted from books. and I. I wouldn't say most times, but a lot of the time when I've read the book, I'd rather not see the movie. It's a very similar approach for me, The and it works yeah. the other way for me as well, which is okay. if I've seen the movie, I generally yeah. don't have an interest in reading the book. Hmm. Because yeah. I've already seen the movie. Because you've seen the movie. Yeah. Right? So like the sort of book versus movie experience, um, when I've seen something on Broadway, I don't want to see the movie. And I hear that there is a, that, that the Disney version of Hamilton is fantastic. Have you seen it? I yes. haven't. Yes. Have you seen it? Yes. Okay. So having seen both, what is your assessment? So we recorded the conversation with Kate, and I mentioned in that conversation that I was headed to Broadway to see Hamilton. And, right. and in the interim uh, time between when we recorded the conversation and when the episode is being made public, I have mm -hmm. seen Hamilton on Broadway. And Kate's right. It's fantastic. When you go to a play or when you go to Broadway and see a musical, you know, you're you're sitting back from the stage. And so you don't get every detail on a character's face just because of that distance, right? And so it's a that's one experience. And it was a great experience to see it on Broadway. When you watch the Disney Plus version of Hamilton, they have extreme close-ups on faces. 
and they take you onto the stage in in a way that you'll never get to do just going to Broadway and seeing it in a theater. And so it is a very different experience to watch it on Disney+. Plus. Well, I found one of the things I talked to my wife about after seeing it was one of the differences between seeing it on Disney+, Plus and seeing it on Broadway, is Mm -hmm. that when you see it on Disney+, Plus, there are a lot of close-ups where you don't see what's going on on the rest of the stage around the actor. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I found myself sometimes getting a little too caught up in what's happening in some of the background on Broadway because it was really interesting. And I'd also never seen that part of it in certain scenes because the camera had been on a close-up of one of the actors. Hmm. Okay. Note, second note to self, watch Hamilton. Yes. The Disney yeah. version. So let's also talk about how COVID and sort of Netflix has changed the way, for me anyway, um, I read more than I watch entertainment and I will say that after I left the U.S., my movie, my husband and I used to do date nights every Friday. We would go to the movies um, when we lived in the U.S. And then we moved to Nigeria and then moved to the Netherlands. And the whole movie going experience is actually not quite the same for me outside of the U.S., interestingly enough. But if in the past couple of years, it's almost like I've, I've lost interest in in, in entertainment, like movies, like going to the movies. COVID also sort of made that, made that worse, people not wanting to go out. But I have to say that Netflix changed my life in the past, um, in the past year and a half. Um, I'm now watching things on Netflix. I'm, you know, my kids and I just finished watching Squid Games. Oh, I haven't um, watched that yet. Kate oh, mentioned it. I haven't watched it yet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Really wow! I'll just leave it at that. All right. Um, but even the way I consume um, entertainment, you know, when I worked in Hollywood, um, one of the perks of the of the job was we would get we would get to see the Oscar nominated movies. My boss would get sent all the pre get the tape of all the nominated movies, and that's how I got to catch up on all my movie, all the sort of like you know Oscar nominated movies. Um, so that was one way. Um, that I that I kept in touch, but I after listening to your conversation with Kate, I realize how ancient I am now. I didn't recognize <laughs> half the names. Genres have changed. Now it's you know Asian and Korean, and and I was like, wow, I really do need to get back into my sort of my my movie life. Uh, but I also think you know I I like I like documentaries. I like the classics. I like I like the old Hollywood. Um, I'm not a sci-fi sort of person, uh, you know, Harry Potter, that stuff is great and extremely creative, but I, I, I don't know that I find those, that sort of storytelling as interesting as, you know, so now I'm telling my age, I guess, but it made me realize that um, I'm really not in the know so much anymore about, uh, about the movie industry. And, and, and it's got me, um, really interested in, so I think I will actually go back and start watching all the Oscar-nominated movies and sort of to get back into my movie-going groove, as it were. It's interesting because you talk about in a previous episode we talked about Nollywood and mm. the film industry in Nigeria, and, and right. at the time I think you said it was maybe the third largest in the world after Bollywood and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then you think about what's coming out now. From South Korea, and you think about what's right. coming out from other other places. Australia, I've, right. I've watched a number of Australian TV series now. Right. Um, Danish, my wife and I watched on Netflix a Danish TV series. And I think what's fascinating about technology today is whether it's Netflix or Hulu or Disney or Peacock or HBO or whatever it may be, you have all these streaming services that give us the opportunity to see things from places around the world that we may not have otherwise seen. Exactly. So when I, I was doing some research before we had this conversation and I was trying to confirm if Nollywood was indeed the second largest, and it is, I'm told it's between Hollywood and um, Bollywood. Okay. So it's Hollywood first, um, Nollywood second, then Bollywood. Nollywood's bigger than Bollywood. Apparently. Wow. Um, 
So it says it's the second largest in the world between Hollywood and Bollywood. Yeah. So apparently um, Nollywood is churning out over a thousand movies a year. Now, not, you know, the production level is not Hollywood and maybe not even Bollywood, um, but they're churning out a lot of movies. And there's a lot of American production companies and crews coming to, you know, collaborate with people in Nigeria. So it's definitely a growing industry. And, you know, technology, like you rightly said, all the streaming services, is making the movie industry really global. So I'm not a big, um, I don't watch a lot of TV, um, especially now that I live in Nigeria. Most of my TV is news, which is not very healthy either. But how, how often do you watch Netflix series or Hulu? Or- so we generally watch, when we get into a show, we, we binge it and really actually get into it. So as I mentioned right now, we're watching The Leftovers, my wife for the first time, me for the second time. And then we're watching The Morning Show, which is Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon uh, mm. and their take on morning TV in, in the United States. It's a little bit of a riff on uh, The Today Show when Katie Couric and, and Matt Lauer were at The Today Show. Uh, mm. Really, really good show. They're releasing an episode a week. And okay. so we're watching it. I think it comes out on Fridays. And so Friday nights, we're watching the morning show or Saturday sometimes if we can't do a Friday night. Well, I do have to say, I do like the option to binge watch stuff. I don't know that I have the liver or the patience or the bandwidth to wait months for a new season of something. Uh, it's funny. I watched um, because on social media, I read so much about Bridgerton. Yeah. So I watched that over a three-day period. I think I started (laughs) on a Friday night and I watched the last show ending at seven on a Monday morning. Wow. (laughs) Before my nine o'clock meeting. (laughs) So yes, I'm a a binge watcher. So I have a question for you about how that works in your household, because one of the things that happens in my household is that my wife is like you will binge like that and not be able to stop. And so we sometimes have some conflict because she will want to keep going and I'll want to go to bed. And I'll say, well, why don't you just wait and we'll watch it together? And she says yes, but then stays up and watches it without me. (laughs) Well, that exact scenario played out with The Crown. Really? I started watching The Crown together while we were actually in on holiday over the summer. So I binged like, I think the whole of season one, I think. And then he caught up and then waited for me. And then I just kept going. And then, and then he, he's, now he's lost interest. He's like, well, I really wanted to watch it with you, but you're so far ahead. And so we've just stopped watching the crown, but I, I do need to finish the crown finally. Um, so yeah, well, the good news is my husband's not a big TV watcher. He's, he doesn't, you know, he's not a big tube watcher, um, but every once in a while I'll identify something that I really want to watch with him and then we'll, we'll do it as an exercise. Thankfully the kids aren't home. So, but when the kids are home, I would imagine it would be a much much bigger conflict TVs in the house. <laughs> Not that many TVs in the house to begin with. But yeah, I I do like to watch things with my husband. Um, but A, he's not a big TV watcher and he certainly wouldn't be doing binging exercises like I do. So most times I just end up doing it on my own. Our kids yeah. occasionally will watch a movie with us. I don't know that I've ever watched since they were really little, maybe, you know, Blue's Clues, which is a, you know... <sighs> A show for really little kids. Maybe Phineas and Ferb might have been the last show that I've watched with my kids because they will just go up to their room and and watch a show on their iPad or their computer. Exactly. So Squid Games was special for us because this is this was the first time in a very long time we've watched something as a family activity. And I really enjoyed that. Well, Adobe, we we went from a very serious subject uh, with, with Leslie Hare to talk about police reform and criminal justice reform in the United States to a much lighter conversation with Kate uh, Caldwell about casting in Hollywood. For our next episode of The Key and the Kite, we're going to talk with a doctor from Denver, Colorado about the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, she left her family in Colorado and went to New York City to help out when New York City was being besieged by this pandemic. We're going to find out what it was like to go into that situation in the spring of 2020 before we knew anything about 
really how to treat and and how to stop COVID-19 and kind of what that experience was like to go to a hotspot and volunteer to walk into hospitals being just besieged by people who were sick with a brand new disease that no one knew anything about? You know, just listening to that introduction, I know it's going to be an emotional one because, of course, as the whole world knows, uh, the U.S. was devastated by COVID. I think more than, obviously, I think more than anywhere else in the world, quite frankly. And the idea that somebody left her family to go you know, into the front lines. I, I can only imagine the stories that um, that will come out of that conversation. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. The Key and the Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. Our social media manager is Laurel Hedrick. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Key and Kite Pod. Music for the Key and the Kite is written and performed by the A.V. Grouse Band. The first album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their new album, Telltale Heart, debuted at number seven on the Billboard Blues album chart. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Please join us again in two weeks.